Talks on Psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought to you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. In this podcast, titled Ferenzi's Legacy in Winnicott's Work, Luis Martin Cabré attempts to show the influence that Ferenzi's thinking about the feminine and the child mind, especially in some of his clinical experiences and theoretical intuitions, had on the development of many of the concepts that Winnicott established in psychoanalytic thought and which have endured to the present day. Since, as in Winnicott's case, Ferenzi was practically excluded from readings and discussions among analysts for many years, the hypothesis is that psychoanalytic transmission is not only carried out from reflection and theoretical study, but also on an unconscious level and transgenerational manner. Louise Martin Cabré is past president and full member with didactic functions at the Asociación Psicoanalítica de Madrid. He is full member of the Italian Psychoanalytic Society and an accredited member as a child and adolescent psychoanalyst. He is also a full member of the Spanish Society of Psychiatry and Psychotherapy of Children and Adolescents, founding member of the International Foundation Sandor Ferenzi. Further to this, he is the European representative on the IPA board between 2015 and 19, and member of the European editorial board of the International Journal of Psychoanalysis and the American Journal of Psychoanalysis. Ferenc's Legacy in Winnicott's Work, Luis Martín Cabré, Madrid. In an annotation of April 7 to his clinical diary, Ferenc puts forward to a very suggestive concept that many be useful in explaining the bewildering feminine phenomenon of a certain mode of psychoanalytic transmission. It is a concept completely linked to trauma. He calls it alien transplants from Überflansungen, which involves psychic, psychic contents of an unpleasurable nature that vegetate in the, order, in the other person during the war of life, remaining not representable, inaccessible to symbolization, and not even amenable to express in action. It is a concept that allows to take into account the part of the unconsciousness of the parents, grandparents, or people of another generation implanted in the psyche of the child. The originality of this idea lies in the transgenerational character of this mode of psychic implantation. For almost 30 years, Psychoanalysts not only relegate the figure of Ferenczi to silence, but they eliminated the theoretical aspects he explored related to regression and especially to the countertransference. Possibly, the unconscious part of Ferenczi's controversy with Freud was implanted to the psyches of early post-Freudian analysts and vegetated throughout their lives as an alien transplant 
inaccessible to consciousness and symbolization. And it was transmit, transmitted from generation to generation. Perhaps this fact allows us to understand how some of the concepts and intuitions of one of the analysts most identified with Freud's theoretical postulates and who contributed most to the development of psychoanalytic the technique have been used by a large number of analysts, Winnicott among others, without naming him or recognizing his paternity. Ferenc's contribution to psychoanalysis has not been limited to his countless contribution to trauma, regression, or countertransference, which are perhaps the best known. It is undeniable that Ferenc created an analytical style which left a deep mark on a whole series of later analysts, who in turn made huge contributions to the development of psychoanalytic theory. No one could doubt that Winnicott's contribution to psychoanalytic theory introduced, in turn, a therapeutic style in which the analytical situation was equated with the mother-child relationship and their continuous interactions. With extraordinary theoretical clinical acuity, he also developed concepts such as those of the good enough mother, hating countertransference, the capacity to be alone, etc., which are indispensable for any contemporary psychoanalyst. On the other hand, he described what he called primary maternal concern, which allows the mother to actively adapt to her child's needs naturally and spontaneously. Similarly, from Winnicott's perspective, the analyst and the patient form an intersubjective relationship which reproduces some of the characteristics of the mother-child relationships mentioned above, especially with regard to the analyst's ability to emphasize and capture the primary needs of his patient. Years later, concepts such as Beyond's reverie, or more recently, Leon Greenberg's concept of projective counter-identification were der derived from this idea. Beyond his original theoretical creations, such as those relating to transitional objects, spaces, and phenomena, Winnicott proposed a series of concepts that are surprisingly consistent through described with a different terminology with some of Ferenc's most peculiar and characteristic intuitions. But like most analysts who collect and develop ideas, clinical intuitions, and technical approach that Ferenc had previously suggested, Winnicott never quotes him. Even thought concepts like the good and mother hating countertransference the capacity to be alone, technical transparency, breakdown, the constitution of a false self, the therapeutic value of regression, transitional object, etc., sound extraordinarily close to some of the best known 
Ferencian developments. The absence of reference to the Hungarian analysts nevertheless indicate a theoretical heritage that Ferenczi bequeathed and unconsciously transmit to Winnicott. Meanwhile, in the work The Classification, is there a psychoanalytic contribution to psychocratic classification? Read at a scientific meeting to, no, of the British Psychoanalytical Society in 18 March 1959, Winnicott does refer to Ferenczi's text Child Analysis in the Analysis of Adults, stating, Gradually, over time, the study of psychosis begins to take on greater importance. Ferenczi, in 1931, made a remarkable contribution to his study by attributing the failure of the analysis of a patient suffering from a character disorder, disorder mainly to a deficit of psychoanalytic technique. And in the postscriptum, entitled Donald Winnicott Talks About Donald Winnicott in 1967, he confesses, it is quite possible that my ideas about the antisocial tendency and about hope, which, uh, and about hope which have been extraordinarily important in my clinical practice, have been taken from somewhere else. I don't know, for example, everything I have obtained from the reading of Ferenczi. A brief review of Ferenczi's thinking about the feminine. In his fascinating essay about the theory of genitality, Thalassa, which is a brilliant psychoanalytic construction of k-metapsychological reflections, Ferenczi suggests that a part of the human being is dominated by a permanent regressive trend which follows the primordial wish of reinstating the intrauterine situation. This part, opposed to the principle of the acceptance of displeasure and to access to the reality principle, dominates dreaming, sexual life, and fantasies. In this text, Ferenczi introduced the concept of passive object love, which later would serve as the antechamber of some of the most outstanding developments by Balint, Winnicott, and Margaret Mahler, all of them opposing the Freudian conception of primary narcissism. The essential idea, the essential idea of this work, which is contemporary to Freud's The Economic Problem of Masochism in 1924, is the prepuce vaginal theory, allowing for a formidable series of equivalences between fish, penis, and child. Quote, he quote, the envelope of the, of the glands inside a mucosal membrane prepuce, he states, constitutes a reproduction of child's intrauterine life, reproducing in turn the life of the fish, phylogenetic ancestor of man inside the great mother ocean. The penis, 
a living monument of past events, contains the memory of the primordial catastrophe, the draining of the oceans, in which the fish were expelled from the modern ocean. The, this catastrophic situation is returned at the moment of birth, when the child leaves the maternal womb and is commemorated in the erection. The erection in which the glands lens out of the prepuce as if trying to detach from it, resembling a self-castration in which the penis is separated from the body. It configures a tendency to autotomy. Will in different varieties of animals, the sexual act is concluded with the loss of the genital, genital, genitalia of, or, or, even with the, or, or, or even with death, in the human being, the loss of part of the organism is confined to ejaculation. However, paradoxically enough, erection represents also the tendency towards regression, a regression traversing the phylogenetic and perigenetic developments as long as the penis in coitus is the symbol of the child who tends to return to the maternal uterus and for the fish that tends to return in turn to the ocean from which it had been expelled. For Ferenczi, this mother ocean uterus embracement also represents death. It goes, it goes with, without saying that Ferenczi echoes of the death drive the second topographical model, primary masochism, the importance of repetition not as a resistance but as an expression of a first-order physical production and obviously of his whole conception in beyond the pressure principle permit the theoretical production of Thalassa. Years later, Ferenczi added several interesting intuitions to Thalassa in a paper entitled Masculine and Feminine in 1929, articulating with remarkable modernity the problem of the feminine position in both sexes through phylogenetic as well as ontogenetic arguments. In this text, the greater evolutionary complexity sensibility and subtly of the feminine with respect to the masculine are prominent, manifested through a superior ability to adapt to pain and suffering, a sounder common sense and a greater emotional and moral weakness. But his most original contribution to the feminine issue is revealed in some passages of his clinical diary. While in his later writing, traumatic stress appears under the guise of deep destructive effects, namely dissociation, fragmentation, and atomization of personality, in the diary, the feminine is turned into an occasion of thinking about the possible place of reconciliation the acceptance of displeasure. 
This place, which does not exist in Freud's thinking, is identified with a feminine principle that passed through nature. The ability to suffer, to accept, to endure, just opposed with the egocentric and masculine tendency to release tension, that is to say, the pleasure principle, are the essential features of that feminine principle, theorized by Ferenczi as something elemental and impulsive, but at the same time endowed with intelligence and linked to the reality principle. This instinctual element is configured as the feminine version of the dead drive. In this sense, in the notes of April 26, he states, in any case, a quite different solution remains open, which says that not all masochism originates in fear, but also that kindness and self-sacrifice exist as instincts in their own right and are perhaps a natural force keeping selfish impulse in balance. Or should the death instinct be posit posi as an instinct of kindness and self-sacrifice, something maternal feminine in opposition to the masculine? Following fantasy, a woman is provided with a greater psychological and physiological intricacy with respect to a man. This fact is sound by her higher differentiation, that is to say, her better capacity to adapt to every kind of circumstances. In the final analysis, this adaptation faculty is determined, is determined uh, by something uh, regarded by Ferenczi as insufficiently explored in psychoanalytical theory, the principle of the affirmation of this pleasure, the ability to suffer. Consequently, he ties the feminine principle to a specific principle in nature and in the psyche and with an instinct designated by him as conciliation, which constraining with the ego egoism at the drive of self-affirmation, typically masculine, can be interpreted as the wish and the ability to suffer. This ability to suffer, to wait, to undergo, and to tolerate frustration makes, among other things, maternity and altruism possible. And let's not left in instead the ability to be an analyst. Because, in fact, to a considerable extent, some of the most decisive features of the psychoanalytical endeavor, such as neutrality, abstinence, permanent contact with the psychic pain in patients, the loneliness of the office, etc., bring psychoanalytical identity closer to the feminine principle portrayed by Ferenczi. Some of his ideas about the feminine were present in his clinical attitude and in his, in his technical handling of analytical relationships. One of the points which Ferenczi insisted on most forcefully 
was the relativity of the analyst knowledge and the necessity of being able to endure, the anxiety of not knowing and even of knowing that one does not know in the countertransference. He insisted upon the dangers in certain omniscient technical attitudes, reproducing an infantile traumatic situation of the patient, and he proposed an humble listening to the patient, which allows an empathic feeling with him, I'm feeling, his deep affective movement. Child analysis. Sandor Ferenczi was one of the pioneers of psychoanalysis who contribute most to the emergence, development, and practice of child psychoanalysis. In addition to describing the interesting case of little Arpat, 1913, who was his patient in which Freud states in Totem and Taboo, and of conceiving his splendid work, The Development of the Sense of Reality in Its Stages, in 1913, Ferenczi was always interested in and enthusiastic about the idea of applying the knowledge of psychoanalytic theory to the treatment of children. In fact, all his work has a point of reference the child, even when it refers to adult patients. For example, in his last major work, The Confusion of Tongues Between Adults and the Child, he formulates the theology of trauma as the result of an adult's psychic violation of the child, of a confusion of tongues among them, and above all, of the adult's disavowal of the child's despair. In this work, the, he attributes a decisive role in the structuring of the child's psychic apparatus to external objects and emphasizes the importance of both identification and decision dissociation uh, processes of the child. As we all know, all know Ferenczi decisively influenced one of his most illustrious patients to theorize, practice, and develop child analysis. In the foreword to the first edition of Children's Psychoanalysis, Melanie Klein pays an enduring tribute to her two analysts, both of whom had influenced her dedication to child psychoanalysis. Ferenczi emphasized how the acute sensitivity to understanding the child uh, soul, child's souls, was decisive in encouraging him to practice analysis, analysis with children at uh, a time when it was not usual. From her second analyst, Abraham, she recalls that on the occasion on his um, 1924 conference on his little obsessive patient Rita in Würzburg, Carl Abraham stated, the future of psychoanalysis is in the analysis of play. Certainly, these words could be prophetic, whether we consider 
the value of the symbolism of playing in a child's psychoanalytic session, or taking into account the concept of playful space described by Winnicott just later, both as a potential space for grown and as a transferential relationship itself. No one can question today Donald Winnicott's contribution to the development of child psychoanalysis and to psychoanalytic theory that situated him between Anna Freud and Klein's irreconcilable theoretical bipolarism. He ended up being considered by both similar to Ferenczi as a true adversary. Winnicott, who built his psychoanalytic identity with the help of his extensive pediatric practice, introduced a therapeutic style in which the analytical situation was equated to the mother-child relationship and it continues interactions. Following Ferenczi's thought, Ferenczi had already explored the effects of inadequate maternal care and deficiencies on the genesis of the child psychic suffering, he described what he called primary maternal concern, which allows the mother to actively adapt to her child's needs naturally and spontaneously, and to the extent that a strong and stable bond is formed between them. This, in turn, allows the child to endure the inevitable experiences of separation, loss, and loneliness. Similarly, the analyst and the patient form an intersubjective relationship that reads, as not above, some of the characteristics the characteristic described by both Ferenczi and Winnicott, especially the ability that the analyst acquires to capture and to emphasize with the most primary needs of his patient. In this sense, Winnicott attributed a fundamental role to the setting in relation to interpretation, which he also considered fundamental. He did not conceive of the playroom as an inert container, but rather as an empathetic environment, environment which could re restore patients to their experiences once understood and elaborated with the help of the analyst who is progressively installed in the internal world of the patient. In this way, Winnicott approximated the setting to holding, that is, the ability to contain and support the mother and above all her active adaptation. That is, Winnicott regarded the analytical process as a restorative replica of the natural growth process. Consequently, he thought that in order to gain access in the analysis of certain serious pathologies caused by situations of primary deficiency, long waiting times were necessary together with a sufficiently good container and a setting that would allow the patient to build basic trust, an indispensable ingredient for, for regression and reconstructions. reconstruction. Similarly, Fennessy had foreseen the need for the, for the analyst to develop 
a capacity to intuit the child's needs and to be able to assist him properly, which is similar to that possessed by a mother. Thus, Winnicott attached decisive importance to external reality and the real world in which the individual lives and which he can perceive objectively. Suffit it to think of Winnicott's long series of concepts in these regards. Facilitating environment, primary maternal concern, good and hard mother, holding capacity, handling capacity, regression to dependence. These are concepts whose ultimate meaning refers to the real and objective importance of an external element, the environment and the mother in the case of the child, the setting and the psychoanalyst in the case of the patient. Awarding them an importance which is greater the more they, they, they go back in time or the more the patient is in a uh, state of regression to dependence that can become absolute. The importance of flame. But how does the idea of external reality interact with psychic reality? In my opinion, Winnicott's most brilliant contribution derives from that question, the identification of a fair sphere or intermediate area between the internal and the external, between material reality and psychic reality. It's the transitional space, a kind of automatic trigger of the child's psychophysical balance under moderate levels of tension and restlessness, a mediator between the comfortably familiar and the unpleasantly unknown. Winnicott's great intuition was to understand that transitional objects and phenomena formed a specific and irreducible space, a zone of intermediate experience between the exclusively subjective internal world of psychic reality and the world of external reality, an experience that must be shared at, at last by two persons. This space configurates the concept of play for Winnicott, a neutral area of experience built from the illusion or from the integration of experience on a common space that can exist as a resting place for the individual engaged in the perpetual human task of, keeper, of, of keeping inner and outer reality separate yet interrelated. The important thing about uh, playing is always the precariousness of what occurs between personal psychic reality and the experience of controlling real objects. In other words, Winnicott applied the model of play as a space where the channels of communication are mutually permeable to the analytical experience. This means playing stakes takes place in the transitional space between the internal and the external world, between the subjective and the objective, between the symbolized and the potentially symbolizable. 
by proposing analysts as a game, Winnicott as a play, Winnicott was envisioning more than just a relational dynamic. He was talking about unconscious to unconscious communication, about empathy, about reciprocal knowledge, about meeting the other, about exchanging projection and identification. As he stated, in addition to meaning, there are profound experiences in plain as well as a growing mutual knowledge of the two great essential actors of the analytical experience, the patient and the analyst. I would like to note that some thoughts on the notion, on the, of, the notion of play presented by Winnicott as some of his clinical theoretical insights had already been hinted and, and almost enunciated many years earlier by Ferenczi. Already in his well-known work, The Adaptation of the Family to the Child, in 1928, Ferenczi offers an explicit description of the concept of the transitional object that would be formulated by Winnicott 25 years later. But where Ferenczi def defines most clearly his intuition about the concept of play is in child analysis in the analysis of adults in 1931, where he came close to a notion of the function of the symbolic process, considering words in the same way Winnicott would later consider toys and play, this is, as transitional objects. He also insisted on the need to apply the experience of child analyst to the treatment of adults. Indeed, he suggested the need to modify the classical technique in the treatment of certain kinds of patients to which analysts have to adapt instead of giving up their treatment. Far from being frustrated by them, he allowed and even encouraged developing a relationship based on the mother-child bond. With this technique, a very deep regression occurred in some cases, allowing to reach the deepest layers of the psyche inaccessible or to remembrance. Ferenczi argued that the analyst's empathy, together with his patient, humility and tolerance, allowed him to engage and approach the patient's profound experience. In it, he found a sense of confidence, sincerity, and childlike naivety that was totally unexpected. He maintained the importance of sharing the moment with the patient relief the traumatic experience, allowing the transfer to become an actman and the patient to remember, elaborate, and overcome his conflicts, as well as to become reconciled with himself. As I started earlier, one of the points of which Ferenczi insists most strongly is the relativity of the analyst's knowledge, the need to be able to bear in a contra-transferential manner the anguish of not knowing and even of knowing that one does not know. The point is not only to affirm that there is no definitively established 
psychoanalytic technique, but that there is nothing more harmful to analysts than the attitude of a school teacher or an authoritarian physician. All of our interpretation must have the character of a proposition rather than a true affirmation, not only to avoid irritating the patient, but because we can actually be wrong. Just earlier, Ferenczi has pointed out the dangers of the analyst having too much knowledge. In his joint work with Rank, connected it to narcissistic countertransference. But it is, in his work, about the elasticity of the, technique, of the psychoanalytic technique that Ferenc introduced the importance of humility as an essential factor in the technique and ethics of every psychoanalyst. Consider as an example how Winnicott takes up this idea in plain and reality in 1971 when he points out how the analyst should try to hide his knowledge and, above all, avoid flouting it. Only if the analyst is humble can he help the patient's knowledge to emerge. The patient's creativity, says Winnicott, can be only too easily stolen by a therapist who knows too much. Such, as, such an approach is equivalent to saying that deep down the excess of knowledge of the analyst has a traumatic effect on the patient, as it hinders the patient's ability to represent and symbolize mental processes in an autonomous way. In the spirit of child analysis, the analyst is able to penetrate into the scenes constructed and suggested by the patient in a playful and spontaneous way. Furthermore, through mutual analysis, Ferenczi encouraged the patient to explore the analyst's inner world and to reflect on the meaning and on the origin of the analyst's own errors. The resulting material also provided the analyst with the sound regarding his countertransference. The most suggestive innovation of this technique was the significance of the analyst's unconscious response as an indication of the patient's psychic condition. Mutual analysis was a natural extension of concepts such as uh, free-floating attention and unconscious-to-unconscious communication, where the countertransference was no longer an obstacle to an analytical work but an indispensable therapeutic instrument. Analytical listening implied being able to put oneself in the other person's place and accept that person with all his feelings of rage, anguish, terror, panic, revenge, and mourning. True understanding of the patient was based on embodying, sharing, and coexisting without denying in an extreme form of compassion, aspects of the patient lost and traumatic experience. Ferenc's concept of mutual analysis showed its inability to contain certain anxieties and was, strictly speaking, a failed experiment and a therapeutic failure. However, behind it, 
lay many clinical intuition that were technically developed through the experience and scientific production of numerous psychoanalysts. In conclusion, both Ferenczi and Winnicott addressed the limits and limitation of analysis by trying to develop new techniques <coughs> to increase the chance of analytical healing. And it should be emphasized that together with his genius intuitions and clinical contribution, he highlighted at all times a possibly incomparable ethical attitude and scientific honesty. Thank you very much.